I do declare that there has been a murder in Savannah. A man by the name of Caleb Crowder was found brutally murdered. It happened over yonder at the Bodie Mansion. But what in tarnation happened? I do declare it must have been in the kitchen or in the ballroom or the conservatory, the study. Boy, I feel as nervous as a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. I do declare. I do declare it must have been with the poison or the lead pipe, the wrench, the candlestick. Boy, I feel madder than a wet hen in a tote sack. I do declare, I do declare it must have been that cattywampus Colonel Mustard or that uppity Mrs. Peacock or that piddling Professor Peter Plum. I do declare I'm a fixing to get to the bottom of this and solve this murder in Savannah. Now, if you've never played the game Clue before, you probably have no idea what's going on. And if you've never been to Journey the Church before, you definitely have no idea what's happening right now. <laughs> but to set your heart and minds at ease, I must tell you, there was, in fact, no murder in Savannah. And someone somewhere named Caleb Crawdad is probably fine, just as happy as a clam. But I wonder, what makes us as happy as a clam when it comes to murder? Like, imagine a coal miner from 1850s West Virginia or a telephone operator from 1920s New York City, if we were to somehow transport them to the present day and age, and we subjected them to our television shows, our movies, our news media, our books, our music, what might they say? I think that they might be a little shocked and alarmed and say something to the effect of, you sure are enamored with murder. I mean, just look at the titles of our TV shows. How to Get Away with Murder. Or Crime Scene Investigation. And we couldn't just do with CSI Las Vegas. We had to come up with CSI New York and CSI Miami airing all in the same week. Or how about Criminal Minds, a group of FBI agents who study and follow the patterns and behaviors of serial killers. I learned a sobering and shocking lesson a couple years back. I was in a Christian ethics class at Fuller Theological Seminary, 
And I was talking with a classmate of mine before class or during a break. We were talking about life and hobbies and the various interests that we had. And I remember I was telling her about a TV show that I was really into at the time. I don't even remember what the title of the TV show is, but it was one of those bleak and gritty murder mystery type of shows. And I was explaining it to her, and then I asked her, have you seen it? And she turned and looked at me, and I will never forget the look on her face. And she said, I can't bear to watch those shows after my best friend was murdered. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I felt like Wile E. Coyote crushed under the weight of an anvil. And it caused me to consider, how have I become numb or callous or indifferent to seeing death on TV? What is this doing to my sensitivities? If you were to scroll through Netflix or thumb through good old-fashioned TV guide, I bet you that the top primetime TV shows all have to do with murder or death or crime or violence or something of that nature. And it makes me wonder, what is this doing to our culture? What is this doing to our society and our sensitivities? Are we truly, as a culture, enamored with murder? Maybe until it hits home. And now when we talk about murder, we think, well, I could never do something like that. But I want to ask you, how many people have you murdered just this week? Hopefully zero, right? But we'll see. Today I want to welcome you to Journey of the Church, to the continuation of our summer sermon series called the Sermon on the Mount. Now the Sermon on the Mount refers to three chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And this is not like your typical sermon. When we think about a sermon, we think about it preached from a pulpit in the middle of a worship service. Well, this is actually a summary or a collection of teachings by Jesus regarding discipleship, how disciples are to teach and live. And throughout this sermon series, we're exploring a lot of really important themes about peace and forgiveness, about wealth, about worry, about anger, about frustration. And today, it's all about murder. So if you're able to stand... I want to invite you to stand as we read from our memory verse today, from Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. We stand here to revere the word of God, its life-changing and transforming power. Let's read these words aloud together as one. Matthew 5, 1 through 2. Now when Jesus saw the crowd, wait, just me or like everybody? We're going to do it together or no? I'm more amplified, so you got to do better than that, all right? Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. God, we come before you today as a group of people who want to be transformed, who want to be made right and new. So teach us today, God. We want to have open minds and open hearts for you to fill them with your goodness 
and with your love. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. And as you go ahead and grab a seat, turn with me now to Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus begins this teaching by saying, you have heard that it was said to those who lived long ago, don't commit murder. And all who commit murder will be in danger of judgment. So Jesus begins his teaching by addressing and reaffirming the Old Testament law. You have heard that it was said, dot, 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 don't commit murder. Now this comes straight from the Ten Commandments, from Deuteronomy 5.17 and Exodus 20.13. But Jesus does something important here. He provides a radical new interpretation that takes don't commit murder even further. Verse 22a says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with their brother or sister will be in danger of judgment. Well, that escalated quickly. Yeah, but I'm a good person, Jesus. It's not like I've murdered anybody with a candlestick in the conservatory or anything. I'm a good guy. I love puppies. I'm honest on like 90% of my taxes. What's the big deal about blowing off a little steam? I'm not an angry person. Are you telling me that there's a problem with anger? What's the big deal about anger? You gotta be kidding me. Well, when I am an angry person, people just love to be around me. I don't know what it is. It's just like I'm a magnet and just attract people in my anger. They just love to be near me. I'm irresistible when I'm angry. When I'm an angry person, people feel just so comfortable to open up. They drop their guard. They're able to relax and sit back and just be themselves in this tranquil environment. When I'm an angry person, people, they see Jesus in me. My words and my actions look strikingly identical to the sacrificial and humble love of Jesus Christ. No, not by any means. When I'm an angry person, people do not love to be around me. People do not feel comfortable to open up. People do not see Jesus in me. Well, what makes a person an angry person? Jesus says it has a lot to do with our words and our actions. Verse 22 continues. It says, if they say to their brother or sister, you idiot. Now the New Testament is written in Greek, and this is an occurrence where there's an, Amer an Aramaic word inserted into the Greek text. Aramaic was a lingua franca, the common tongue, the common language of the day, and this word that gets inserted here into the Greek text is raka, which can be translated as you fool or empty headed person. So, idiot is a good translation. If they say to their brother or sister, you idiot, they will be in danger of being condemned by the governing council. 
Who is the Sanhedrin, the highest legal and legislative and judicial body of the Jews at this particular day and age? It was made up of both Sadducees and Pharisees. And if they say, you fool, the Greek is moros, which is where we get the English word moron. So you fool or you moron, they will be in danger of fiery hell. Now, who's ever said something a little bit more than you moron or you fool? Yeah, I talked to a guy first service, and he's like, yeah, I've definitely said my share of moron and fool and a whole lot more. Well, what here makes a person an angry person? Let's take a look at the characteristics of an angry person. An angry person is unable to control their words or actions. And these words or actions, they can cause serious harm to yourself and, of course, to others. An angry person has a short fuse, becomes immediately irritable when things don't go their way. An angry person is often bossy, pushy, and selfish. You may think, well, this is not me. I'm not an angry person. I'm just going to ask the people around you real quick. And they may say, well, yeah, yeah, you're not like bossy or pushy or selfish. You, you don't have a short fuse. You're not an angry person. But did you know an angry person might not look like an angry person? An outwardly angry person is easy to identify. They look like they've got short arms, sharp teeth, and they remarkably resemble a reptile from a prehistoric age. Their roar sends everybody fleeing, scurrying for their lives. But that's not just the only type of anger. Sometimes an angry person doesn't look like an angry person. Sometimes anger is not an outward expression. An even more toxic expression of anger is the internal kind that dangerously seeps into our hearts. It develops into hate, like passive aggression or prejudice or racism. So what is Jesus doing here with anger and murder in this section of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, he's actually equating anger with murder. He's equating anger with murder. And you may say, well, I'm not the one with the candlestick in the conservatory. That's not me. But maybe I'm murdering people over and over and over again in my heart and in my mind. And here Jesus is showing us how anger can be just as detrimental as murder. You may say, well, Jesus, you were angry. Don't you remember that whole fiasco at the temple? Let's talk about angry Jesus. In John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22, Jesus, he made a whip and drove out the money changers in the temple, upturning their tables, creating a big ruckus there. But what's interesting is that this word for anger, orge, it doesn't show up in the passage at all, even when it happens in the Gospel of Matthew. The word anger does not show up, but obviously it seems like Jesus was enraged. 
I mean, he could have been like laughing or really joyful as he's doing that, but I don't, I don't think so. The word doesn't show up, but the actions are pretty understandably angry. Well, the word does actually show up. Orge shows up in Mark 3, 5, in an instance where Jesus gives an angry look to the religious leaders. Kind of like that angry look your mom would give you when you knew you were in trouble, right? You know what I'm talking about. Moms, can we just see that real quick? Wow, that is scary right there. They're all different, too. We got eyebrows raised on one side. We got teeth grimacing. It's scary right here. Don't, don't do that anymore, please. But Jesus does something like that. He gives an angry look to the religious leaders who said that he couldn't heal a man's withered hand on the Sabbath. However... The anger that Jesus showed was always because of injustice or because of sin. Jesus exercised righteous anger. And we should do the same. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians at Ephesus, and in his letter in chapter 4, verse 26, he told them, be angry. It's actually command form, imperative form. Be angry without sinning. Don't let the sun set on your anger. So that means be angry, but also reconcile it. Get over it. Deal with it quickly, lovingly, effectively. Be angry without sinning is really tough, though. It takes a lot of self-control and a lot, a lot of prayer. But this is being angry without sinning, essentially righteous anger. And there are things in our world that we should be righteously angry about. We should be righteously angry with drug peddlers, with abusers, with pedophiles, with pornographers, with racists. But we should also pray for them too. Because if we don't, who is? A couple years ago, we were meeting at the Boys and Girls Club as Journey the Church and had people pray for various groups of people that are often really uncomfortable to pray for. And there were people who left the church because of this, because we were praying for people who had done terrible, terrible things. But when I look in the mirror, I don't deserve the grace that was given to me, so why should I withhold it? From someone else. If I know forgiveness, then I show forgiveness. If I know grace, I show grace. If I, I don't show forgiveness, and if I don't show grace, maybe I don't know what it means to experience grace or experience forgiveness. But I'm not trying to let them off the hook. I'm trying to say we should be righteously angry about these things. We should be righteously angry with those who pervert and twist and adulterate God's word and God's purposes. But unfortunately, most Christians don't struggle with righteous anger. We struggle with unrighteous anger. And we cart it around with us wherever we go, and the body count rises, and we become serial killers when it comes to unrighteous anger. Jesus continues teaching about this murderous, unrighteous anger in verse 23, but he does something really interesting. 
is that he switches from third person they to second person you. It becomes much more personal and challenging and applicable. Verse 23, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go. First, make things right. You can also translate that as make friends with your brother or sister and then come back and offer your gift. Jesus is here speaking about the priority of reconciliation. What do I mean by the priority of reconciliation? Well, Jesus is saying that reconciliation is important enough to interrupt worship, to stop it, to shut it down, because things need to be worked out. Harmonious relationships with people must be in place before any true worship can take place. This is why it's so hard to come to church and raise your hands and praise God when you have overwhelming tension and hatred and frustration with the person right next to you. It's actually impossible. So Jesus is saying that when you're here to worship and present your offering, if you've got issues, if you've got tension and frustration and anger and hatred with somebody, leave it there. Leave your gift there, that is, and leave immediately and go make friends, make things right, be reconciled, and then return to worship. Well, this is tough. This is tough, and it's also time-consuming, especially in Jesus' day, in Jesus' socio-historical context. This was tough, and it took a whole lot of time. I want to take a look at a phrase that Jesus had used about bringing your gift to the altar. He said, if you bring your gift to the altar, this expression here, it refers to a sacrifice that would be given at the temple in Jerusalem. But here is Jesus speaking in Galilee, presumably to a majority crowd of Galileans. And so he's envisioning a hypothetical Galilean worshiper who has traveled some 80 miles from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south with their offering, with their sheep or their goat or their doves. And now according to Jesus, if the worshipers got beef, that's the theological term, if they've got tension or issues or anger with somebody, they are to leave the animal on the altar and then make the week-long journey 80 miles or so back to Galilee and reconcile and make friends before returning back to worship. Well, that is tough, and that is time-consuming. But in this way, Jesus is showing us it's about making friends, not making murder. How can we praise God while simultaneously at the same time perpetrate murder? You can't. Because hallelujah and homicide, they don't mix. Verse 25, Jesus closes out his teaching here by saying, Be sure to make friends quickly, that is, without any delay or speedily with your opponents while you are with them on the way to court. Otherwise, they will haul you before the judge. The judge will turn you over to the officer of the court, and you will be thrown into prison. I say to you in all seriousness that you won't get out of there until you've paid the very last penny. 
We must do all that we can, all that is in our supernatural, God-endowed, Holy Spirit power to reconcile, to make friends, to make peace, to make things right. It was a late evening in Paris, and I was underground on the metro, and it was jam-packed. It was stifling hot. We were packed in like sardines in a tin can, and your shirt is sticking to you. It's so hot. It's sweltering. You can't even breathe. You're suffocating. There's so many people jammed into this metro car, and I'm on my way to the Eiffel Tower And it seems like the whole world is packed in there. Thousands of people with me. It was unbearable. But now in France and in other places throughout the world, when you're on the metro or the subway or the tube, people, they don't really talk. It's just usually quiet. You're listening to the sound of the rails and the wheels rolling. Well, I heard some voices to my left growing louder and louder escalating in volume. And I turned to see as best as I could, and I saw that there were two men who were now screaming, screaming at each other, in each other's faces, spit flying everywhere, eyes wide open, faces flushed, neck veins pulsating. And they were screaming some hurtful, hateful things. They were making a language as lovely as French sound so full of spite. And then the man who was closest to the door, who was engaged in this feud, he reached his hand into his pocket and he pulled out a ladybug red Swiss Army knife. And he flipped it open with his knees bent, his arm arched over his head, ready to pounce like a tiger. And at this, the whole car, all the people inside were panicking, trying to get as far away from this as they possibly could. And I couldn't do anything. My arms couldn't even lift up. It was like a bunch of salmon swimming right at me, and I I couldn't move. And before I knew it, I had been pushed forward, completely exposed. Nothing No one between me and these two men feuding with this dangerous knife glimmering above his head. And I just prayed. I prayed, God, bring peace to this situation. And suddenly, the metro car slowed and came to a complete stop. The door opened, and the man wielding the knife hopped out. And went on his way, but before he did, he took one glance back. And I wish, it's an image that I I wish I could completely erase from my mind. But his face was so contorted with anger and rage and hatred and bitterness. It was disturbing. And all I could think was, why? Why? Why had it come to this? From my vantage point, these were two complete strangers. 
two complete strangers who had allowed anger and frustration and bitterness and rage boil over to near murder. But what murder had already been committed in their own hearts and in their minds for one another? It kept them. It kept them unable to make friends, to say sorry. Instead, here they were screaming hate and making murder. And now I think about this story, and I think, that sounds a whole lot like me. Sure, I might not be wielding a knife in a metro car or a candlestick in the conservatory, but what murder am I committing in my heart and in my mind, murdering people over and over and over and over again? So what do I do? What do I do with this? Is this the time in the sermon where I give you the three easy steps to an anger-free me? No, because I'm not allowed to. I'm not allowed to. The Sermon on the Mount disallows that because the Sermon on the Mount is not about behavior modification. It's about life transformation. And in order to be transformed, my mind must be renewed. That means I need to be brainwashed. And my mind definitely needs to be brainwashed. It needs to be brainwashed. And I am so serious about this brainwashing that I had to write it down. I wrote some notes out. And this is not for you. This is for me. This is the brainwashing that needs to happen in my mind and in my life. But maybe, maybe you need it too. I need to be brainwashed to see that my anger is merely a lack of control over the obstacles in my way. I need to be brainwashed to see that my anger is unjustified, uncalled for, and selfish. I need to be brainwashed to see that my anger is disregarding the fact that Jesus bled, died, and rose for my enemies, for those I'm frustrated with. And despite what they may have done, we have this commonality because Jesus bled, died, and rose for them and me. I need to be brainwashed to see that my anger is keeping me from experiencing true love and freedom. I need to be brainwashed to see that my anger is preventing me from seeing Jesus in the people and in the circumstances around me. I need to be brainwashed to see that my anger is not helping me overcome the challenges in my path. I need to be brainwashed to see that my anger is ignoring the reality that I am a child of God. Forgiven, redeemed, made right and whole by the blood of Jesus Christ. I need to be brainwashed to see that my anger is an inhibition that needs to be reconciled quickly and lovingly. And when I feel angry, do I want my own self to be heard? Or do I want Jesus to be seen? 
I have a hero in my life that I've never met before. Never met him. I don't even know his name. I only know a few things about him. And these things were shared at his funeral. I heard about this man. He was a faithful man. He was in the Navy for many years. He was a high-ranking officer. He was faithful to his work. He was faithful to his church. He was also faithful to his wife. And the story I heard about him, that they said at his funeral, that he had been married for many years, and not once, not once had he ever raised his voice to his wife. I thought, I want to be like this guy. This is my hero. I want to be like him. It was said that he was able to reconcile things. Not just quiet his mouth and then allow it to go and sink deep down and transform into hate or vile things, but he was able to deal with it quickly, responsibly, and lovingly. I thought, I want to be like that. To have the capacity to forgive, to move on, to reconcile, and be made right. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your love that covers over us our anger, our rage, our hatred. Lord, I know that this is a tough message for all of us. But I pray, God, that you would help that you would help us to remove this from our hearts and our lives. That we could see these obstacles in the way. Help us, Lord, to be tender. That we would be quick to listen and slow to become angry. We thank you, Lord, for taking our anger, our unrighteous anger, our murderous anger, our sin, our guilt, our shame, the things we've done wrong. I thank you for taking that and bearing that on the cross for us so that we, may, we would be made right. I pray, God, you would continue your work in us. And if someone in here today wants to accept you and know you for the first time, that they would pray, Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross my sin, my unrighteous anger, my sinful behavior. But you died on the cross and you dealt with it there. And you rose from the grave, defeating death. So come into my life and show me how to live. Holy Spirit, teach me the ways to walk so that I can live for you all the days of my life. We pray these things in the name of never ever fails. In the name of Jesus, amen.